Welcome back to season three of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Throughout my podcast, my focus has not only been to destigmatize mental illness, but to also provide different perspectives to elicit empathy and compassion. When we are fully able to be curious, we begin to develop a better understanding of others. D. John Jackson joins me today. He is a Fortune 50 leader, creative visionary, who is an executive producer of documentary films, an author, a strategist, a futurist thinker, a lecturer, and a motivational speaker. He is also the founder of 5J Entertainment, a company committed to educating, informing, entertaining, and promoting positive images for African-Americans through various forms of media. Its first documentary film, What About Me, explores the untold, unheard, distorted, and misunderstood stories of Black men in America. Dijon, thank you so much for joining me on a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, you, you do have this documentary film, but you also have this book you authored. Also, what about me? Um, it's, it's, it's part memoir, but also a book to help others kind of navigate race in, in the world. What motivated you to write it, especially in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? Well, it's always been a part of me to write the book and tell stories about my childhood and you know, really what my parents poured into me. Um, my mom and dad always taught me to respect every person, regardless of race, creed, or color, social, economic status, or gender. And that's just a part of me. But having a successful career and ongoing career, but also doing many other things, I wanted to give back in a broader way. And I felt what better way to do that than to actually share some of my personal stories that happened from to me you know, as a little kid on up through adulthood, good, bad, ugly, and indifferent. But if I could share those stories and also inspire, encourage, and educate people at the same time. And that was really the impetus. Uh, I made a speech probably about four years ago. And I've been taking little notes about things that have happened throughout the years. But uh, I made a speech and a lady came up to me after the speech and said, you know, you changed my life. And, and she had tears in her eyes and she says, you have to write these things down. And sure enough, that was just another catalyst to say, go forth and do it. And you know, finally, I was able to do it. Wow. Well, I did read your book. It was fantastic. Well, and it does sound like you had incredible parents I who did. really helped you navigate the world. And it's a difficult world to navigate. You're you know, right. you, you describe being Black in America as walking a, on eggshells on a tight rope a, Cross an active volcano with the wind blowing. <laughs> what, what are you having to balance so precariously? And when you think about, you know, specifically for me in the book, it talks about me, but it also talks about some of the other common themes that not only Black men and Black boys experience, which is, you know, a, a hyper sensitivity in terms of where we are today, but also women, uh, any other people of color, LGBTQ. But for me, I wanted to get that personal sense of. Here's what I've had to balance throughout my career through university in these different types of places. You have to think twice about what you do. And I know there may be those who say, hey, never, never worry about what people say, but think about it as you strive to get your education, as you strive to work on various jobs, corporate jobs and what have you, you, know, you have to learn to fit the norm and navigate. And in a lot of those cases, you know, certain things were not always uh, on the up and up. And you realize that 
if you're going to survive, you know, it's a mental and physical uh, challenge to wear the right thing, be at the right place at the right time. And you're probably going to be scrutinized more so than anyone else. And that's a reality. You talk about a lot of your personal life in the book. Do you feel comfortable now sharing any microaggressions you've experienced at the hands of well-meaning white people? Yeah, I've experienced a lot of things, uh, some microaggressions, some maybe a little bit more blatant, more subtle. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was making a presentation some years ago at another company, and I had a gentleman walk up to me and say, I was wondering if there was more to you than just that suit you're wearing. And it wasn't a joke. It was a very serious, straightforward comment out of the blue, you know, after a discussion had been made at the end of a meeting. And I thought it was the strangest thing in the world uh, for somebody to walk up and say that. And so that's just one of the things, one of many things I've experienced. And I used to ask when I was younger, I was like, wow, why do people act this way? But I've understood now it was really for me to learn and for me to be able to share my experiences and grow from it. Once upon a time, I was a young engineering manager and I had one of my employees ask my boss in front of me, do I have to listen to what this guy says Wow. to do? And he was just as serious as you and I talking right now. And my boss was like, yeah, sure, he's your manager. And the guy was, you could see a little bit of disgust, but mm-hmm. you know, that's life. Wow. How did you react to that? You know, I was startled and stunned just a little bit. And at first I thought this guy's joking, but when I actually looked at his expression and the timing of his question, it was very real. It was very real. And I'd been on a job maybe a week and a half or two. So I was very new to the position. So it wasn't a joke. It was pretty straightforward. When you get these reactions or these statements from people, does it change how you navigate your surroundings, how you move forward in the world? It does. It gives you additional information and intelligence, especially it depends on where you are in your career. Because as you're, if you're young in your career, you don't want to push the wrong buttons or step on any landmines. Uh, it, it's, it's really something that can stress you out because you're trying to figure out if the playing field level. I think as you go through your career, you become a little bit more astute, a little bit more savvy, but the things still persist. And again, that notion of having to navigate and balance, that's the thing about the tightrope that I, I want everybody to understand, the metaphor of it. It's a constant balancing in where you place every step. You have to really be concerned about, for me, as I progress through university and career and just as what I, my life, there are others watching as well. And I had to realize there may be folks who are looking for your demise, but then again, there are folks who are counting on you and pulling for you. Yeah. So that's additional pressure because you've got to, you don't want to have any missteps. But I think to, to really answer your question, you do have to make the right steps because when you think about your career or promotions or anything, whatever industry you're in, there's someone who at least has some input on you know how your career progresses or how your grades go in university. And you have to be concerned about that because again, you're trying to move forward with your vision and you know, what you want to do for your life and your pursuits. Vicarious trauma is is very real and, and seeing so much violence against Black men, especially by authority, is traumatic. How do parents talk to their children about this, especially Black boys? 
I think for me, the model that uh, is the one I know best is how my parents talked to me. Uh, they were very encouraging. They always said, shoot for the stars. You know, you can be anything you can be, prepare. Uh, education, hard work were fundamental, foundational types of things. But then they would come back and say, now let me give you more reality. There will be people who dislike you just because of the way you look. There will be people who dislike you because of maybe how smart you are, or where you come from, or what you save. So you have to be prepared and be able to persevere. So I would tell parents that you have to educate your children so that they're not in this uh, environment or culture of shock because they've been either in not necessarily denial, but just completely oblivious to the harsh realities of the world. And so what my parents did, they gave me the positive outlook of the world, but they weren't Pollyannish. They were able to say, here's the positive outlook of the world, but now here's some realities. So I want you to have a balance. And in that balance, you have to be careful what you do and say, but you also have to be prepared for how to navigate. And that's, that's the biggest thing, uh, one of the, the most impactful uh, things that they gave to me. I consider it a blessing that they poured that into me at such an early age and just emphasized it throughout, not only by uh, talking about it, but you know, life's examples. You know, Respect people, do the right thing, but then also realize that of no fault of your own, there will be people who mistreat you. In the beginning of your book, uh, you discuss energy and Newton's second law of motion and how shifting can, can really change the trajectory of your life. Uh, you know, I believe this was this, I believe this was the first sentence. Maybe it was in the introduction, I believe. Um, and immediately I felt like it spoke to me because, you know, in my own traumas, I'm, I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. Um, I've always operated at a very high level of stress, um, fight or flight, kind of always expecting the worst to happen to me. Um, and it took me a very long time for me to understand that in expecting the worst, I'm really also actually attracting that negative energy too. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe how shifting our energy can be life-changing? It's so important. Uh, you can become encumbered with the negative thoughts, the, the whole negative sphere and realm of what if the bad things happen? What if these things go? So I think the positive thinking, I talk about this in the book, positive thinking, positive attributes, uh, constantly reaching down deep inside or even having support structures to help you stay in the, the realm of positive thinking. Because that helped me get through a lot of things, to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, there were situations where you were like, how am I going to make it through this? Especially if it's job related or if it's uh, educationally related. You've got to go every day. This is somewhat of a crucible you've got to bear that you have to go through because you're trying to make it to the next level. So let me stay positive and use everything that I'm going through as ammunition to make me stronger and to make me more positive. However, I will tell people this, you know, when it comes to the mental traumas that people experience, there is nothing wrong with getting help. There's nothing wrong with asking for a helping hand. A lot of times, in a lot of communities, especially the African-American or Black community, there's a little bit of a stigma to get help. And I think, you know, if there's professional help required, go forth and do that. If you need a support structure, if you need some a trusted partner or friend that you can just get it out of your system because the stress uh, will start to manifest itself physically. You know, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, stroke, heart attack, if you're in these situations. So, what I try to do is to mitigate all of those things, stay positive, 
and where I had to reach out and talk to someone or get this off my chest. Now, this is where it's good to have a good support structure, uh, your family, your friends, people who are trusted, maybe one or two people that you can talk about how you really feel. And obviously, if it's more uh, acute, you, you may have to have medical help or seek out medical help. But I think what I've tried to do is take every situation, see the good in it, compare my situation to possibly what could be worse, figure out how I could survive and then learn from it and then move on. Yeah, I know that for me, when, you know, I, I see a trauma therapist and it's always like, well, what is the worst thing that could happen in this situation? I find myself thinking about that. I think about that in therapy. I'm not saying that it always happens when I'm in the real world and things are just getting thrown at me. Um, but that is something, you know, if you do that as frequently as you can, it's something that'll just come become second nature to you. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's, that's just huge, because I do believe a person's psyche is special. It's got to be protected. And it can be bombarded, you know, daily, even like you talked about microaggressions, you know, start to deteriorate a person's spirit. Mm -hmm. And when you deteriorate a person's spirit and will, will to live, you know, I think all of those things end up creating uh, even more stress, even more trauma. Yeah. Yeah, I'm beginning to understand that people who, you know, can be abusive or, or just mean, you know, for the most part are probably reeling from their own insecurities and their own trauma, which are triggered by other people, which causes them to lash out. Do you feel like we should be more curious about other people? Yeah, I, I've always tried to think about this in a broader sense. We never know what other people have endured or what their stories are or what their histories are. Uh, I, as I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I've talked about it in some different speeches. You know, the background aspects of an individual and what's been poured into them and the mechanisms that are triggering their behavior, you know, there's always a degree of interest. How did this person get to this point? You know, if it's, if it's a mean person, if it's a person who is just completely distasteful, what is it that made them that way? Mm -hmm. And you would ask, was there some traumatic incident? Was there a childhood? Was there an incident that just created their a whole different makeup of their, their thinking and, and belief in humanity and life? Because I always ask, how can a person just be so mean and uh, mm -hmm. inhumane to a person that is, hadn't done anything to them? Right. And I always ask, is there their deeper question? And I know in society so fast paced, like ours, nobody wants to take the time to do that. Right. It's, right. it's like, I don't have time to do this. I got to worry about myself. But I do in my situation where uh, I talk about this in the book, where probably there's only been one time in my career where I experienced someone who treated me extremely harsh mm -hmm. for about two and a half years. And to this day, I can't tell you why. I have some theories and a couple of hypotheses, but the thing about it, I asked what, what went wrong in that person's wiring? Did yeah. it start in kindergarten? Did it happen in high school? What, what created it? And uh, I can see the person in my mind, but I have to clear that out of my head and let it go because for a while I was bitter about it. And I think one of the biggest things I learned is I never want to be in a position 
uh, as a leader, formal leader, informal leader, anybody who creates such a harsh and horrific environment where a person will become physically ill. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you find your positive thinking. You're finding where, you know, that silver lining, you went through what mm-hmm. you went through for two years. Mm-hmm. But from that, you learned, I'm not going to treat other people that way. Well, I'm, right. I'm sure you would never have treated other people that way just by your own upbringing. Yeah. And you maintain your, your, your perseverance and fortitude because what I did, I says, okay, I am going to keep doing and being the best that I can be. The more, you, the more it comes at me, the more I'm going to be, I'm going to treat people even more uh, with respect. And I'm going to be an example, you know, despite what I'm going through, I'm going to be an example of this is how you're going to do it. And this is how I'm going to do it, regardless of what goes on. And so I think that's just been a huge, that was a huge lesson to me uh, under fire. Mm-hmm as I listened and I experienced and I received the behavior. And I'll admit, you know, uh, for quite some time I asked, why, why is this? What's, what's behind this? In the book, you, you talk about stereotyping. How do we avoid falling into the trap of stereotyping? Besides being curious, because I feel like that can help. This is such a multifaceted you know subject the stereotyping because stereotyping still happens to this day and i talk about it in a sense of you know media media pushes images and stereotypes around the world and those things stick and then there's a historical aspect of stereotypes you know if you can imagine that year after year tens and 20s and 30s and 40s of years you know people have said this or that and those stereotypes have been taught and trained when people grow up that's what they expect and mm-hmm. then they become reinforced by could be one incident or it could be something in the media and so those things still exist so what i tell people to do is every individual is different and this mm-hmm. is something my mom uh she still says it to this day is that you never judge an individual with group characteristics you're taking one individual and casting dispersions or casting this net so wide that everybody is like that. And what she always taught is learn to accept a person and meet a person where they are, find out about them, and then you make your decisions on how they treat you. It's a one-on-one and you'd be surprised. You may meet your best friend. Mm-hmm. You may meet the person that saves your life. You may meet the person that you marry. Uh, you just never, ever know. But when you walk into a room and you say, wow, there are those people and you automatically bring, you know, years and years and uh, of uh, stereotypes and you immediately go into that mode, you don't know what you're missing. And you've actually probably missed out on some very beneficial interactions. So what I do, uh, I try to apply that principle. I tell others to apply that principle uh, you know it's 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 interesting you get on an elevator and a stereotype that happens all the time you know women clutch their purse uh you know black men get to the elevator and and listen i tell people to be safe but you know you're in a suit i had a lady one time who did that to me she didn't know that i was the vice president of a department but i think the the common thing that i stress here is learn about the individual if you don't get a chance to learn about the individual uh, observe, watch, and see if you're in New York or look out into you know, in LA or Chicago where it says, oh gosh, all those people. 
And the instant that you do that, you completely, completely eroded uh, so much trust, so much positivity because of just that thinking. And I, I implore people not to do that and to try to learn more about each other, regardless of race, creed, or color. And you'll be surprised what you learn. But even if the person isn't someone that you desire to be around, you will have enhanced your sphere and scope of understanding. And you will have facts that you acquired that you can use, as opposed to, I heard, I thought, or the media yeah. says. Yeah. Experience matters. You know, matters, yes. it, it really, really matters. And, you know, what I love is you, you've created this 5J entertainment to kind of offset what the media is doing. My documentary, uh, my good friends, uh, Taru Brooks and Daryl Pitts, uh, the book was already a part of my fiber. I knew I wanted to write down my experiences and get that out. But uh, I was making a speech in Los Angeles uh, several years ago. And uh, my good friend, Taru Brooks, I met him and we were talking. And I says, you know, I want to give back. I want to do something bigger and broader to reach more people. And I was talking about the book and he says, you know, wow, you know, a documentary would be great. And we kind of talked about it and I thought about it. And I said, wow, that would be something different. And you know, finally I looked at the details and we got together and I says, listen, I'm going to do it. I want to do it. And so uh, they joined me as executive producers. We pulled it off. And What About Me, which is actually airing on Amazon Prime a video now, is really about black men. And it started to talk about you know, there are themes that people consider black men monolithic, you know, they're all the same, but actually they're good husbands, they're doctors, they're artists, they're entrepreneurs, they're hedge fund, they're teachers, coaches, plumbers, uh, the, all these kind of things. And we were able to show all of these different walks of life, attorneys, actors, uh, people have been wrongly incarcerated. So when the documentary was being uh, shot, at the same time I was writing the book, and those two things were coming together. And I said, I want to form 5G Entertainment. And 5G Entertainment will be that vehicle and that mechanism uh, to pour back into the world these positive images of not only Black people, Black boys, but I also want to look at people of color, uh, women, LGBTQ. How can I be more of a connector? Uh, my mother told me early on, probably about seven, eight years old, that I would be a connector to bring people together. And my dad used to talk about it, says, look at, look at our family, you know, all these races and creeds and colors, you know, how can we be racist? You've got everybody in here. It's like the, it's like the United Nations, you know, mm -hmm. our family. So when you look at all of these things, how do we bring people together and show them that the world can be better when people come together and people understand? It won't always be perfect. So that was the impetus behind 5J Entertainment. What is 5J? Why the, why the name? 5J is my family, just, just a number and, and representing my family. Uh, mm. People used to call us the Jackson Five. Uh, ah, yes. uh, we, we don't sing, we don't sing, but 5J <laughs> really talks about uh, my family and is a reference to my family and uh, near and dear to my heart. You know, honestly, and for me, you know, growing up, um, you know, as, as an Asian American woman, I didn't, you know, I didn't really see Asian American people on on TV and I uh, I guess I didn't realize that that was a problem for me until like got a little older and I'm like oh okay I would just kind of connect myself with oh like there's a brunette there <laughs> and I'm, you know so um I, I love that you're doing that but I, I feel like 
when it comes to education, you know, we don't really look at the ugliness of America's history. And you talk about the importance of education and why, why do you think Americans are so uneducated about America's history, especially black history? You know, for instance, I feel so, so ignorant to have just learned about black wall street or the Tulsa massacre only just last year. And this was Mm -hmm. something that happened a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. How can we remedy this ignorance? Well, one of the things I talk about in the book, I have a model. I guess the first step of the model is education. And education is so important because it's it's relevant fact that has to be understood and acknowledged. How do we get educated, understand, and really acknowledge? Because there's a lot of denial out there, and there's a lot of things that people don't want to talk about. As a matter of fact, that's been a case for years, hundreds of years now, because the truth, people did not want to come out. So you have to get beyond that. And then that's the only way you get to uh, understanding, uh, common ground, connectedness, and healing, because you have to get to that that core element. One of the examples I used uh, in one of my speeches where I was talking a couple of weeks ago, it's like mathematics. You know, if if you're a chemist or a physicist and you've got to solve a calculus problem or chemistry problem or physics problem, something very, very hard, there's certain facts that you have to agree upon, you have to know. The problem is already hard enough, but we all know water freezes at 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. We all know that it boils at 212, unless you're at Antarctica or somewhere, it might be a little bit different. And we know that things like pi are 3.145. You know, we, we know those things. So everybody in the world agrees that those facts are known and understood. We know what gravity is. So when we start to solve a really hard equation, we put those facts in and then we work together and we start to solve the problem. Well, that's how I use history and education. Those are facts. And we're trying to solve a really hard problem. So we have to recognize the facts. Can you imagine if you and I or a group of us were solving a problem and half the room said, water doesn't freeze at 32 degrees. It freezes at you know, 47 and half the room says, oh, we think it freezes at 52. And one room says, water doesn't freeze. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to solve a problem where that's a key constant that we have to plug in. So I try to make it practical for people to understand. That's why history is so important and the facts and understanding the facts and recognizing the facts and acknowledging that things occurred. Once you do that, then you can make your path toward healing, common ground, moving forward, truth, justice. Uh, But as long as there's denial, You'll never get to it because because you didn't use the right facts. And I think there are a lot of people today who are completely clueless about the facts and why there's such a pushback on not understanding. But my love of history started early. It's a true way to understand the humanity. When I started to uh, understand history and my mother said, you know, you can learn about people of the world. And not only did I learn about the governments and study about the governments and how things worked, I deeply did deep introspection on myself and what did the humanity for the individuals, what was that like? Whether it was in China, Hong Kong, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Darfur, what was in Bosnia, Herzegovina, what was in Vietnam, you know, what were these things like for the, what was that human aspect, that human element uh, that sometimes you don't get in the, you know, the rah-rah of the history or when you talk about wars or talk about how people experience. So I am very much so cognizant of you know, how 
civilizations were formed, uh, the things that people endured of all races, creeds, and color. You know, but obviously in America, you know, uh, where we live and where we're citizens to understanding the founding, but then understanding, yeah, there are some things that weren't quite right. And to recognize those things and then to look at how to move forward, but just, you know, ignoring it, you know, again, back to my math problem, you'll <laughs> never solve it. You talked about denial a little bit ago. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think in, in, you know, do you think guilt plays a role? I know, I know that that's getting into the emotions now. I, I, yeah. I feel like a lot of things elicit emotions and I think it's hard. Do you, do you feel like guilt does play a role in denial? Yeah, I, I think it is because you start to deny because I'm sure your guilt meter goes up, mm -hmm. you know, and, and most people are like, wow, if I start to, if my guilt me meter starts to go higher and higher, sometimes it's unbearable. Uh, some people have a higher uh, degree of uh, acceptance of guilt. Others, you know, are like, no, no, I'm not accepting anything. Why should I feel guilty? I had nothing to do with it. It's not about if you had anything to do with it. It's about the complete picture and the complete story of the fact, which is in a lot of cases been completely suppressed, completely suppressed for years. And uh, that's a tough one. And so I think denial is an easy path. You know, the denial opens up the opportunity to suppress your guilt or suppress the acknowledgement that anything is ever wrong. Because a lot of people have been taught a certain way and, and I expressed this to someone on another show I was on, it really cuts to your core because if your great grandmother, grandfather, grandmother, grandfather, father, mother taught you something and said, this is the way it is. And now you find out that that was not true. That really starts to tear at your heart and your soul mm -hmm. because these persons that you loved, they felt a certain way and taught you certain things. And now you have to find out that what was taught was not quite accurate. That, that's a much deeper cut into mm -hmm. your psyche and who you are. Right. In the book, you discuss steps for, for others to be an agent of change. And I know you, you spoke about education, but can you elaborate with, with all the other steps that you, were, you discussed in the book? Yeah, and I talk about, you know, education is first and foremost, and I, I think there's the component of understanding uh, that there has to be this education. Uh, and, and then when there's education, we would hope that there's an acknowledgement and, and a lack of a denial. I talk about denial to some degree because there are still folks today who just won't acknowledge, but acknowledgement and denial go hand in hand. And then understanding uh, if I can start to understand your vantage point, or at least reckon with your vantage point has been different than mine, and what you see and what I've seen has been different. So that way you get into the understanding. And then you start to realize that if I can get to understanding, then I have the opportunity to say, there might be this ability to connect because now I'm starting to at least ask questions. Uh, I'm curious, I am listening intentionally. And I think that's very important to have intentional listening. Uh, in some places today, people like to come up with what I call microwave solutions. Hey, I listened to your problem. I got a quick solution in 15 minutes. 
it's not going to ha- it's not going to happen that way. You have to listen to people, whether it's corporations, whether it's uh, uh, nonprofits, whether it's sports organizations. If you truly want to understand diversity, equity, inclusion, and those individuals who've been harmed, you, you have to listen intently. And sometimes that listening may be for long sessions over a period of time because there's a degree of comfort and trust that has to be earned. And the worst thing that organizations, companies, universities can do is to get people to open up and then either use it against them or dismiss it. Mm. And that is just, that ruins everything. And then ultimately you want to get to healing. And if you can get to some healing and common ground, the allyship comes in where you say, hey, I need to have some action planning and let's go take action. We can do more. And taking action means that, you know, when you see racism and see people abused or discriminated against, you don't just look at it and ignore it. You know, if you're on social media and your friends are saying all kinds of things, or if you're in a restaurant, or if you're at your, you know, your party or your garden party or your bridge club meeting or whatever, and people are saying things about neighbors in the neighborhood, this, that, and other, you stop them and you say, hey, that's not right. You shouldn't say these things. Well, I'm uncomfortable. And that's how you start to, you know, start to erode these, these behaviors. Hmm. What would it take to eradicate racism? I think the steps that I just outlined would start to help mitigate them, but just human nature in itself, human nature in itself, you know, has certain things that uh, uh, prevail and are pervasive. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, I tell people, science says about three seconds, people look at you and make a decision about you. About three seconds. You know, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. They've decided they don't like you, whatever, your same race, whatever. I don't like you, I don't, whatever. And so when those things happen, you know, those are those human elements. But when they become uh, more more corporate and massive, and people all start to think about it, those things forge these uh, stereotypes and narratives that say, hey, we don't like those people. So I think what we have to do is educate, understand each other more. And don't get me wrong, I, I know there are things in the world that are not perfect. There's some things that are, you know, bad stuff happening. But I think the more we come together and understand each other, we can talk and communicate and talk through things and then move from that point. But again, it goes back to this notion that we're all human, we're all equal, and we have to understand the vantage point for those of us who have been disenfranchised or our ancestors have been disenfranchised. And then ask the question, you know, what can we do uh, to improve that? Because ultimately, we're one big team. This country is one big team. We ought to want every member on our team to be as strong as we can be, as uh, well-educated, so that this country continue to thrive and that it can be a beacon in the world. And if that's the case, the United States of America can can be that beacon in the world because as it talks about giving your tired, your hungry, and your poor, yeah, they come in here and we we do things. And as we come together, uh, we make the country stronger. But then there's a recognition that everyone is equal and that uh, we do have to be honest about, yeah, there have been some shortcomings, but we can be better. In the book, you also talk about you know, the, about the importance of knowing when it's your time to speak. How do you know when it's your time to speak? 
and what should you say and what are the consequences of being wrong? And I think with knowing your time to speak, this is where, again, very, very astute listening and observing situations. Uh, I always, in, when I'm talking to students or teaching or uh, lecturing on certain things, I said, you've got to always be aware of not only your, your physical surroundings, but those surroundings and mechanics of things that are going on, you know, locally and globally. And that's why I always tell people to be aware of what's happening in your neighborhood, what's going on locally, what's happening in your office space, what's happening in your, your university. And as you start to listen, you actually absorb data and factoids and information that feed you, that are really equipping you for that moment. And as things start to occur around you, it's different from every everybody else. I think the George Floyd murder created a catalyst for a lot of people coming out to say, I'm going to finally stand up and say something. It may not always be something that catastrophic mm-hmm. or something of that level. Uh, it, it could just be that I'm tired. I, I feel that I've got to say the right thing. It's, it's incumbent upon me. But as you've listened and as you've watched and as you've observed, you've actually been pouring into yourself you know, these, these key points of facts and data and forming your opinion. And that gives you the trigger to say, you know, now I'm ready to speak. And I always tell people, be, be, be careful about speaking because I think everybody knows people who just talk. <laughs> you know, just, they just start talking and you're like, what are they talking about? And I think a lot of times you're, you're like, I don't get it. You have to be careful about that because not only does that hurt your image, that only that also hurts your credibility. But for me, knowing when to speak also played a part as me of who I am. You know, anytime I say anything, whether it was in university or in the corporate jobs I've had or where I am, I have to think probably about three to four nanoseconds before I speak, thinking about how is it going to be perceived? How is it going to be received? How is it going to be characterized? That statement, once I put it out into the ether, into the ethos, here is my opinion. So it needs to be solid, needs to be well thought out. Mm. In creating, you know, this podcast and and my magazine, Authentic Insider, um, and other current projects, I've been able to, you know, find my purpose. You know, I think that's when I felt like it kind of just came to me to just to to speak and on a podcast um, that I create, and, and it's helped me through my traumas. And what about me? You talk about finding purpose in unlikely places. I have to say, I found this in a very unlikely place in, in sharing my own secrets. I thought I would keep or take to my grave, to be honest. But, you know, how did you find your purpose? And, and how can anyone listening do the same? It's not all about what I can do. It's about try to help, try to help somebody else. And that's when I came to the conclusion, I said, well, the best way to try to help others, you've done, a, you've done a decent job in those very close in your sphere. And you know, one of the things you think about, it's bigger than family, it's not about family. Family, you take care of, that's your responsibility, that's your duty. But when you think about those in your sphere that are around you that you see, and I said, I think I can do more for those who don't know me. And I said, that's when I've got to go to a bigger stage. And on that bigger stage, I have to tell these basic and simple truths and just, you know, speak from the heart. 
I'm, I'm huge in self-care. And at the end of your book, you discuss how to not let your baggage block your blessings. Can you elaborate? Yeah, that was a, a saying that my grandmother and my mother used to talk about. And it was one of the things I had heard over the years. And really, it boils down to this. We all experience certain things. We're taught certain things. We have certain issues. And if that encumbers us and really clouds our thinking out, we could actually use that to block one of the best things in life that's happening to us. So to give you an example, there may be a person in your office or a person in your university, you know, your parents or grandparents or whomever taught, you know, never, never deal with those kind of people or you know, don't ever work for a woman or don't ever work for those kind of people. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's what I'm taught. <laughs> And you get to a situation and you realize that, hey, I am exhibiting those same type of behaviors, but the very person that they told you not to have any dealings with or what have you ends up, could be your wife or could give you a promotion or hire you for a job, one of the best jobs ever, but you allow that baggage and all those things that you've been taught block you from that and you get never get a chance to know it. You know, sometimes a negative occurrence is opening the door for something else. Mm -hmm. But you have to think about that and you have to look at that and not let me getting hung up on, well, I didn't like that. And now realize that that's opened the door for something else. So those are the kind of things I try to talk about, which are really basic fundamental principles that I was raised upon. Mm. I'm trying to learn that things happen for a reason, even if there's something negative that happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's hard. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's really hard. Uh, but what I've done is I always retrospectively look at things that have happened and things that have occurred. And then introspectively, I try to look at, you know, how do I play into this and how do the puzzle pieces come together? There are multiple scenarios where I can actually walk through connecting the dots of where good things and bad things happen. And if you took them as one individual dot, you would have said, ah, oh, that, that adds up to nothing. But when you connect them together, you realize, wow, this was the path I was meant to be on to get to this point. So that's why you treat people right. You never know who you're meeting, who you're talking to. Uh, you know, you can't look down on somebody because or you don't, they're, they're not worthy or they're this color, they're a woman or they're Asian or they're black or they're not in my socioeconomic class because the instant that you do, you don't understand how that particular cog or piece is set in place to take you to where you desire to be or your destiny. And I, I think that's so important, so. Wow, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to add? Oh, I, I appreciate you uh, having me on the show. It's been phenomenal. Uh, talking about my book, you know, my book's available on Amazon. Uh, please go out and get a copy and read it and see what we've been talking about. And um, the documentary is on Amazon Prime Video streaming. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a really good introspective view into things that maybe the mass media, they don't really show on television and all the different outlets. And uh, I'm just happy to be able to pour this back in the world because my parents poured it into me. Mm, 
Amazing. Well, thank you again for joining me today. That was D. John Jackson, author of the best-selling book, What About Me? Walking the Tightrope as a Black Man in America. He's also the producer of the Amazon Prime documentary, What About Me? and co-founder of 5J Entertainment. To learn more about D. John, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find the link to purchase his book as well as his documentary. You can also find my social media platforms at the top of the homepage. And don't forget to subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Take care.